Hello again, I'm Miriam Felton. Welcome to Yarn Stories Podcast. Today I'm chatting with Anastasia Williams of Garden Wool and Dye. She runs a yarn business focused on wool, all naturally dyed with stuff that she grows, forages, and liberates from roadsides and fields. Natural dyeing is a super fascinating subject and one that I have almost zero desire to do in scale. I have the stuff to make an indigo vat and I plan to do a bunch of indigo dyeing when the weather warms up, but beyond that, nope. I know my limits and I'd rather buy pretty naturally dyed stuff from other people. <laughs> So it was really great to talk to Anastasia about these processes. Stick around for a discount code for her shop. Okay, let's talk with Anastasia. I'm talking today to Anastasia Williams of Garden Wool and Dye in Elk Point, South Dakota. Hey. Hi. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So Garden Wool and Dye is your business, and you're doing natural dyes, like wholly, right? Solely natural dyes? only natural dyes. So natural dyes can be really labor-intensive, more labor-intensive to use than the common chemical dyes. What is it about natural dyes that makes it worth the effort for you? I think it's the sustainability aspect of it, Mm -hmm. because with natural dyes, you know, you can have like a never-ending supply of this, you know, element that's not, is not a chemical compound at, well, I mean, in the general sense, it's not a man-made chemical compound, but it's not only do you have like a sustainable source that you kind of have a little bit more interaction with really of being able to like go out and forage it and harvest it and do all that kind of stuff. But then you have the other aspect of it that it's safe to pour down the drain, Mm -hmm. which I think is so crucial especially in a day and age when we're worried about like our environment and the climate and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. so you're using basically like plants and you know roots and bark and stuff like that that kind of thing mosses to do your dyeing with yeah that's primarily what i use every once in a while there's an insect that sneaks in there cochineal um yep cochineal (laughs) definitely but uh beyond that yeah it's just that i do some mushrooms as well nice they smell horrific most of it smells really bad Well, most of it, like to get to get to a point where it's a good dye stuff, it has to be like broken down to some extent. So either it's like soaked in liquids or it's, Mm -hmm. you know, dried and pulverized and, you know, fermented a little bit. Yeah, no, exactly. That's exactly how it is. And each one of those like can absolutely be used in a certain stuff. Like you have some that have to be like soaked. You Mm -hmm. have some that are best when they're dried or maybe just for convenience sake are better when they're dried. And then you definitely have certain things that ferment, especially when you're talking about like having an indigo vat. It's very similar to a fermenting process. But And anyway, fermentation never <laughs> smells really good. No, none of it. None of it smells good. Except maybe yeast fermentation, like bread dough. We've, we, I think we've been yeah. trained to learn to love the smell of bread dough. That's a fermentation that we can get behind. But other than that, fermentation usually doesn't smell great. Yeah, and I agree. And it's too bad that yeast doesn't yield any color that I know of. Right? So. Because then it would smell so nice in your house. You'd be like, uh, you know, know, people would be like, oh, are you baking bread? And you're like, no, I'm dying yarn. Yeah, <laughs> instead of like being the witch house of like, there's all this weird stuff in jars everywhere. Why? <laughs> <laughs> A little bit about fermentation in our daily lives. 
Even if you're not a kombucha drinking, sauerkraut making, fermentation nerd, fermentation is still present in your life. For instance, if you like beer or wine, yogurt, bread, pickles, olives, all of these are ferments. That's not even covering the ferments that impact our food chain before it gets to us like fertilizer, compost, stuff like that. Those are all ferments too. Ferments basically are anything where a bacteria or a yeast breaks down the structure of something else. So fermentation and our crazy symbiosis with bacteria is amazing. Moving on. That's my house, except that all the stuff, weird stuff in jars is jam. <laughs> well, I think that's more socially acceptable than just a weird floaty, like, what are you going to use that for? Yeah. I'm just going to put it on yarn. The astonishing <laughs> quantities of jam in my house kind of throw people until they know that I'm writing a jam cookbook. So, Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. So, like, I'm testing all the recipes and, you know, <laughs> testing recipe size, which means that, like, each batch has at least six jars and there's no way I'm going to eat six jars of that same jam, oh you know? Oh, my god! So, I'm giving away jam like crazy, like, mailing oh. it to friends and, like, just... <laughs> Like, if you come over to my house, I'm like, here, take jam. <laughs> Bring back the well, jars. You, then you are probably covered for Christmas gifts then, yeah? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So uh, you grow and forage some of the natural dye stuffs. Can you tell me about those processes? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because some of it is all is can be happenstance, like totally by accident. Like the stuff that I forage, it's usually not intentional. Like I'll be driving down the road Mm -hmm. and I usually keep a pair of garden shears um, and a garbage bag in my backseat. And I'll just like stop to the side of the road and I'll be like, oh, that's it. I want this. And so like there's this weed that grows rampant in our ditches here called yellow dock. And I, we have um, woad, we have a dyer's woad that grows crazy all over the place here. And that would be great if it was something that like really truly was hey, we know this is going to be amazing. And woad, especially because you can get like blues instead of yellow, which is 99.9% of what everything in nature dies. Um, (laughs) But I I grabbed all this yellow dock thinking it was goldenrod. Like I was totally, it was wrong. And I mean, I'm not, honestly, for doing natural dyes, I'm not like the most plant savvy person. I showed it to my friend who is, and she's like, oh, that's yellow dock. But you can also dye with it. It just creates a different kind of yellow than a goldenrod would. And and it also depends on when you get it. So it could Ah. be that, you know, the I know with yellow dock, there are two types. You can either get the type that bloom twice a year or there's an annual type. And that type is the one that you typically would grow in your garden. So when it's wild, it usually blooms twice. So and, you know, when you get it, whether it's at the peak of its season or the end of its season and whether it's an annual bloomer or a biannual bloomer totally makes a difference on what color you get. Oh, interesting. Um, so when you're driving yeah. by it, do you just like see like, oh, it's blooming. Get it now. Kind of like panic, you know, now. Well, yes, yes, <laughs> like, exactly. That's it. And so if there's something that I see and I don't have my stuff with me because I'm in someone else's car or something and I'll try to go back for it whenever I can or someone will say, hey, I have a bunch of somebody told me I have a bunch of goldenrod out at my property. So I went out there with her and her kids and we went and we harvested goldenrod. It was the very, very end of the season. But I still yeah. got a bunch from it. So, um, but yeah, a lot of it's by accident, like my mushrooms just pop up in my landscaping every once in a while. Yeah. And when my husband goes out to go scrape them off, I'm like, wait, 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 hold on. <laughs> Those are mine. I'm Put them in a bag. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to steal that. Okay. Quick interjection. I found this shit fascinating. I looked into what colors mushrooms can dye and whoa, was I surprised. 
So something simple like a horse mushroom, which is totally white, looks like your standard grocery store mushroom from the top. The Underneath, the gills are a little different. But when it's mordanted with salt water, it makes a yellow green. Seriously. And giant puffball mushrooms, also white, make a dark red. Natural dyeing is crazy, you guys. Same with dandelions. He's like, I'm going to mow. Wait, hold on. I'm going to get all the dandelions before you mow. (laughs) (laughs) You look like the crazy person out on your lawn, like hands and knees, like clipping dandelions. (laughs) I know. Like, I seriously, it's insane. And there's always yarn hanging out, like, on the trees or, like, because I don't have a proper clothesline. Um, Yeah. And so I just, like, look like a complete insane human. So That's awesome. (laughs) I love it. So um, what stuff are you growing? So right now, this year, what I focused on was marigolds, mm-hmm. um, French marigolds specifically. Um, I tried yeah. calendulas and those don't do anything. So we're not, not the same as a French marigold well. So I yeah, actually... The roots of calendula marigolds are really good for uh, herbal medicine, but not... Oh, yeah. And that's yeah. what I've heard. So I really just saved a bunch of the tops, which yeah, probably aren't going to give you as much. <laughs> so really, I did something smart there but uh the, the french ones i've heard those are ones that it doesn't actually matter when you harvest them whether oh. you get them at their peak whether they are dead whether they're frozen mine were all dead i was like they should have been deadheaded for the non-gardeners out there deadheading is when you take the dead flower heads off the plant it keeps the plant pretty but it also helps the plant to redirect resources like water and nutrients to more useful places than dead flower tops and i just went out and i just clipped them all off I put them in a bag and they dyed a great brilliant yellow so I tried that um we've got matter root we put in this year but it takes a minimum of three years to actually get to a point yeah where you can get it so those are kind of in the works and then Mm -hmm. um that's kind of it right well I did red onions as well yeah but I realized that I can just ask my local pizza place to save me red onion skins and even though they think I'm insane um Uh. I get like two pounds at a time, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. So that's pretty much it at this point of what I'm doing on my property. I mean, of course, it's winter now. So in spring, I'll probably reassess that and redo some stuff. Have you considered growing indigo? I have. Now, with my climate, apparently it's possible, though it's kind of finicky. Yeah, it is. um, I may give it a shot. Otherwise, they do have like a sustainable source that I actually purchase from. So... Um, Out of curiosity, where do you purchase from? So I just purchased from like a local supplier that I found online. And she's just like, she's a small business. And so I like supporting small businesses. And when she puts all of her sustainability stuff on there, it's like, okay, great. Sold. I'll take it. Yeah. I have a a local friend. He's actually um, married or at least partners with my, with a friend from high school. Um, which I learned way after I met him, which was funny. But um, he runs Grand Prismatic Seed Company. Oh, okay. And they're based here, and they sell um, they sell heirloom seeds and uh, like you know open pollinated seeds, also for dye stuff. Oh, cool. Because he's a natural dyer as well, like kind of you know like they use their marigold tops and stuff like that. Yeah, he sells he sells a bunch of natural dye seeds. I've been bugging him to like actually harvest the indigo, but he's mostly about the seeds. So, oh. <laughs> but I'm like, get the seeds and then harvest the indigo. I'd love to buy like your indigo. Yeah, so. yeah, definitely. Because I mean, it's I mean, of course, it's another step in the process. Everything's a yeah. step in the process, but it would be nice. It is nice to just be able to kind of go from that 
this was in my garden or someone else's garden. It was harvested. We worked through it. We turned yeah. it into what it needs to be. And then we yeah. added all the weird stuff you add to it to make it ferment. And then you keep it alive <laughs> in your basement for however long you need to. Uh-huh. Yep. If you would like to buy some of the seeds from the company I was talking about and start your own dye garden, or you just like interesting varieties of sustainable seeds for foodstuffs, definitely check out James and Guy at www.grandprismaticseed.com. For real, they sell seeds to grow your own black kabuli garbanzo beans or purple peas, as well as Mountain West native plants, which are super good if you're xeriscaping, which is a method of landscaping design that requires very little water. So it's great for areas that have drought problems. So uh, how is the actual dyeing process different between standard chemical dyes and natural dyeing? The biggest, biggest difference is time. Yeah. is that it just takes so much more time. Um, I think that's the biggest difference is, you know, yeah. every batch that I do. So it's a process of you start with a mordant, which typically with a chemical dye, you're working with like citric acid. So that's mm -hmm. pretty standard. So yeah. with mordants that you can use with natural dyes, now you have multiple options. You can do copper, you can do iron, you can do aluminum, you can do tin, you can do chrome, you can do... I think titanium. I mean, you can do all mm, of this stuff. Interesting. Um, but the only one or the one that I like to primarily use only if I can is aluminum because it's safe. Yeah. If you pour it into water, it's not toxic to marine life. Yeah. So that's, that's the one that I feel the safest pouring down the drain. Like the others such as copper and iron, I do use at times, but I try to like, not use very much. And also yeah. I pour it into safe places like in my backyard or whatever, away from plants, yeah. away from drain pipes, away from all that stuff. So it doesn't go directly into the water supply. The soil can can filter out the metals. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, And I think that's super crucial. So then you have that first step of mordanting with that chemical, which takes, you know, about, oh gosh, I would say about two hours in total to do all the heating, get it up to temperature, hold it at temperature, and then... You have to let it cool down, which depending on what season it is and you have a cold porch or you don't have a cold porch, <laughs> it either goes down quickly or you have to wait a while. And then mm. then you take it out. You have to kind of get it in some form of a rinse and then you put it in with your dye stuff, which the dye stuff usually has to be boiled in some fashion beforehand. Yeah. So that takes another, you know, you put it in, get it to temperature, boil that for an hour, let it cool down to room temperature. Then you put in, you strain it, put in your yarn add more water, let it go for another, you know, get it up to temperature, hold it for another hour, let mm -hmm. it go down to room temperature. And I mean, it's just, it just takes so long. Like a whole day is really devoted to like one batch of yarn, truthfully. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's probably the biggest difference alongside the fact that with the different mordants, you're, you're doing your own color alteration. So your color yeah. doesn't come as is, you know, you can't just say, oh, this is purple. I'm just going to put purple in. You know, it's yeah. like, well, I'm going to get logwood and hoping that my pH is right and that my mordant will pull out the right color and that I don't need any form of a modifier afterwards. I think I'm yeah. going to get purple. <laughs> so um, what kind of what kind of differences does the different do the different mordants make on the colors? A lot of them are just modifiers in the sense that they sat in. So an aluminum modifier, or not modifier, aluminum mordant won't do anything. It just basically enhances the natural color of the dye. So and, I feel and like allows and adheres it basically. Yes, like, lets it stick there and stay there. Exactly. So a mordant serves a dual purpose in the natural dyeing process. 
First, it helps the dye stuff to affix to the textile. There's a lot of chemistry that I don't understand <laughs> that goes into it, but essentially the mordant forms a bond with the fabric or the yarn so that the mordant can then bond to the dye stuff. So it makes the dye chemically bonded to the fabric or the yarn instead of just sitting on the surface, which means that you can wash the finished textile without washing away all of the dye. And second, a mordant can change the color of the dye stuff. For instance, different mordants can have an effect on the finished color of the same dye stuff, which Anastasia will talk about in a second. So I feel like that one, especially if it's not toxic, you know, it's the best one to use. Um, But then you have copper, which gives everything kind of a green hue. So that Mm. one really saddens, kind of darkens colors. And then iron is a big color alterator. So a lot of times I'll have a brown, maybe a brown or a tan, like a tan color. I put it in iron, it'll turn gray. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, so things like acacia or pomegranate will give me different shades of gray by getting that into an iron bath. Or last night I did a bright red. It was a bright fire engine red that I put in to an iron bath, and it turned almost like this purple, dark, dark purple, brownish color. Cool. It was very interesting. That's cool. So how much how much of your production is play and how much is is like actually knowing what you're going to make and making that? <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's like never ever ever what you think you're going to get. You know, I mean yeah. so very rarely. I think the only times that I get it is with extracts. Like if I'm in a pinch and I absolutely have to use an extract, I will, but I like to try to use the true dye stuff itself yeah um but sometimes those are slightly more predictable (laughs) for uh for people listening an extract is the the original natural dye stuff but it's broken down already and like usually powdered or something so that you can get a more consistent uh finished product yes exactly and something that's slightly more predictable but uh there's there's variation to that as well so for sure well and depending on how you know exacting their extraction process has been Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, you can even get certain things into a certain batch that, you know, you know, maybe I have a thing of matter root and it's actually the root and I put it in and it's, you know, mm-hmm. it turns a nice red. And then the next time I use everything the same, the same amount of mordant, the same type of water, everything's exactly the same, same weight ratio. I put it in. Maybe one of them accidentally had some fungus on it. I didn't see. And all of a sudden it's not as red, you know, or it's something completely different. So it just like it was harvested in a drought year. And so it's different than last year or like there's so much that could be different. Anything could be different, even my climate. So matter root that grows in my climate will be different than one that grows in the south. You know, so it's just it is it is mind blowing, truthfully. So it's pretty much 99 percent play even yeah. though I'm trying to get other colors. Yeah. One thing that I really love about natural dyes is that, like, no matter what you get, they all play well together. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like there's, you could have a whole rainbow of naturally dyed things and you could pull out different colors and they'd all look good together. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that because I did an advent calendar this year of mini skeins and oh. it was not my intention to do a rainbow, but it turned into like a perfect naturally dyed rainbow. And I was, when I put them all together, I was just totally in love. I was like, I had no idea that I could get this beautiful range. And again, 99% of them were accidents. And yet they still all looked so 
amazing and you could easily get them all together or easily alter them. You know, if it's not quite what you want, you can do a little tweaking here and there. And yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, I have a piece in the, the fall winter spinoff about a hand spun sweater that I did. And I had Brooke of Sincere Sheep over dye half of my fleece with like mm-hmm. a rainbow of natural colors. Uh, natural dyes so um the yoke of the sweater is like this rainbow of natural dyed colors oh that's so cool it's so neat when you can actually get a full rainbow in i just i think it's so it's just great that just makes me really happy (laughs) i know it does (laughs) so let's touch again on the water question so you mentioned it a little bit let's talk about it in depth so with all dyeing the use of water is crucial and it's fraught because the water carries away any elements that were left in the dye stuff. So can you tell me how you approach the water use? Yeah, so I I am really big into minimizing as like the water use that I have right now. Yeah. And I know that this is this is a bit of a point of contention in some areas because I don't I know not everyone agrees with me on this. But I just feel like what I do in general is I will reuse as much as possible. My Mm -hmm. mordant baths, I've learned you can use them up to like 10 times or so before you actually have to like redo them. And it'll show you too. I mean, the actual mordant will become flaky and instead of like a nice kind of dissolved chemical or it's effectively, it is a chemical in its own way. It's a metal, but Um, But yeah, so once it becomes flaky, then you know, you have to kind of cycle it out. As far as the baths themselves, I also when I have a dye stuff, I reduce as much as possible. So I will use, you know, if I use matter root, and I get a good red off the first time, then I will put another batch into that same amount of water. And I will Mm -hmm. extract whatever is left over of that, I will completely exhaust it until there's nothing left. Until it's clear water again. Exactly. And then once it's clear water, then it can, you know, we put it out in the garden or we can do whatever we want with it or you yeah. know something that's not necessarily always Water putting plants it. yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yes that is exactly what I do yeah. and the other thing is rinsing and rinsing is the part where not every natural dyer does it this way and I'm still always looking for better ways to improve but I don't do a ton of rinsing when I first get the yarn out of the bath I will let it drip dry and I mm-hmm. let it sit for two weeks I don't touch it and that okay. is to cure it. So basically yeah. to allow the time for those dyes to adhere to the fiber. And it will reduce crocking, which is, you know, the appearance of those dyes on your hands, on your skin, when you are yes. knitting with it later. Yeah. And with that, I don't do, once they're done curing, like I do a good rinse and I'm learning now that I can rinse more by using, you know, a, a bucket of water, basically, rather or a bin of water, rather, rather than, than running. Yes, I don't okay. like to run my faucet. I just don't. Yeah. I don't want to do it. I think it's so wasteful. And my big thing is that if it's going to mean that I'm going to have something come off on my hands, which will rinse off in 10 seconds when I go wash my hands later, I would rather have that yeah. than me sitting at a faucet you know, running gallons and gallons and gallons of water yeah. down the drain just to avoid that. Well, and, you know, like, if you really don't want it on your hands, you could put gloves on. <laughs> so, yeah, like... no, yeah, that's true. And, you know, the thing is, is a lot of people worry, like, well, I don't want it coming off of my clothes. But the thing is, is that it's your skin. It's your yeah. skin that has a pH balance that will actually pull those dyes out yep. and they'll embed in your skin. They're not going to transfer. I've knit dark gray 
So like pomegranate and iron, which is dark gray, which comes yeah. off on my hands quite liberally because I didn't wait to cure mine. I just wanted to use it right away. Yeah. And well, um, and like you're, it's, you're not, if you, if you weren't selling those skeins, like nobody cares but you and you're fine with it. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I really don't care. Like my hands always have something that they have them on them right now. And you can see exactly where I wrap one string of it right around my uh-huh. finger because they do yeah. continental anyway <laughs> so I will knit on my in my bed because it's my favorite place to knit but I have a white comforter and there's mm. no gray on my comforter no. none no. I mean I touch it I've rubbed it I've tried and it doesn't come off so yeah I think some of the worries are a little bit fear monger well and, and indigo indigo also has a um will also it's pressure sensitive yes so like I have an indigo dress that I bought, uh, I bought this dress and then altered it. But um, it's, you know, indigo dyed like shibori, like resist patterns mm. and stuff like that. But like, you know, for for like a year, it's been transferring to my body when I wear it. Because oh, <laughs> yes. it's really dark. Yeah. But it never gets on anything else. Like it could sit next to, you know, this like light cream dress in the closet and it's not going to transfer. Yeah. But like, you know, if I started crushing things into the indigo, it might transfer a little but <laughs> because of the pressure really sensitivity. Hard. But yeah, yeah, most natural dyes aren't pressure sensitive. They just react to your skin. Yeah. And I mean, it's not, and you know, indigo is one of those and there's a few of them that are just offenders. They're just going to come yeah. off. They're just, yeah. no matter what we do, it doesn't make yeah. a difference. Well, no matter how many times you rinse it and whether the water comes out clear, like, you know, it can come out mm-hmm. clear and it's still going to transfer. Yes. Yes. I've had that happen so many times where it's like, we rinse it till it's clear, it still comes off. So I'm going to be next spring, I'm going to be implementing like a whole rain barrel system in my yard. So that I can not use a faucet whatsoever. I want to be using just rain barrels. And I do it sort of kind of now. Like if it starts raining and I have stuff that needs to be rinsed. I will, run out. I, will, I will run outside <laughs> and I'll start, I'll hang it outside and I'll let it rain. Put it in the trees. Yes. You got water yes. dripping from your skeins in the that's, trees. That's exactly what I do because <laughs> I would much rather use a net, like something that's already coming down. Yeah. That's probably yeah. a better pH than my water, which is so hard and gross anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> then Living you know. in the Mountain West, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, so that's kind of my plan is just to keep working on it, but in a way that's still sustainable and not a waste of water. I just so disagree with using so much. Yeah. Well, and especially, you know, I don't know what it's like in South Dakota, but like here, we're all we're always in a drought. You know, we're a high desert. There's never enough water. And like this space was never meant to support a city of this size. Yes. Yeah. You know, so like we bring water, you know, from other places and and then, you know. Vegas is stealing all the water from the Colorado River. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's just, it, this is desert and it wasn't meant to support this kind of life. There's not enough water here. And so we're, water use is always an issue here. Yeah, exactly. And so, and that was one thing that, you know, when I've talked to individuals who say, well, I live in California and I don't want to be rinsing my hands, you know, while I'm working with stuff because I feel like that's a waste of my water. And I feel like that's a super valid point. I think that makes mm-hmm. total sense. And so that's why I'm putting in the rain barrel system so that, you know, I'm not wasting it so that they don't have to waste it either. Yeah. Um, yeah. So because I know some people think it's transferred and it, you know, it just depends. But yeah. And I've had some people who will say no matter what I give them, no matter what color I give them, I've never had anything come off of my hands. It's like, well, you might be magic. So I would hold on to that. (laughs) I imagine it also depends on how you tension you know, and how much contact it actually comes into with your skin and how dry your hands are. Like, 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, my hands my hands run dry. Um, my partner, his hands run moist. So like you know, <laughs> he pets the cat and he gets a whole handful of fur. I pet the cat and I get nothing. You know, <laughs> I, there's there's so many varied differences in our bodies that like, you know, everybody's mileage is going to vary on that. Yeah, agreed. And so yeah, so it just makes this whole like rabbit hole of natural dyes even more interesting because it it's just yeah. so dependent on who is knitting with it where it's coming from when it was harvested what kind yep. of water was there etc yeah. <laughs> yep whether or not you did you know a different color over dye to try to you know even out the color or something yeah exactly exactly yeah. and if it's a little bit of dye or if it's a lot of dye and you know it's yeah. just or if it's indigo or if it's cochineal or you know yeah so uh, we've talked a little bit on this podcast about shearing with a more in-depth chat about it in the patron-only content, but you recently learned how to shear sheep. What was that like? What did you learn? Well, it was a really interesting experience. I learned so much. I'll start there. I learned a ton. I learned <laughs> a ton about different breeds. I learned about just the shearing process. I learned about wool. Um But I'll be perfectly honest, like I am almost six foot, I'm about 130-ish pounds. Mm -hmm. Um, I have no muscle whatsoever. You are not a beefy shearer. No, I'm not. And, you know, the (laughs) class, truthfully, was 50% women. It was was surprising. I didn't think there would be. But I was one of the ones who really struggled with it because there are certain positions you have to get into where you know, if the sheep's lying on its side and you need to kind of pull its head up to get up along the side of its neck and you had to hold its head up with just one arm, I don't have enough arm strength to do that. And it just got to a point where I was getting kicked a lot. I was getting knocked down. um, Yeah, because if they don't feel handled, they start panicking. Right, exactly, they do. And, you know, when you see these guys who get up and all of my instructors were international shearing champions, uh-huh. you know, amazing <laughs> shears. These guys get up, they pull a sheep down in less than three minutes. That sheep is shorn and gone, yeah. you know, and it's like nothing happened. So when you are really at a level of you're a good shearer, the sheep hardly has any idea what's happening. Yeah, And it's just, it's fascinating to watch and you look at it and you go, oh, that's so easy. I could do that. And then you get the sheep in front of you and you realize this is a 200 pound you who's pregnant um in our situation they unfortunately did not withhold food and water which you're supposed to about 12 hours beforehand because it makes their stomach uncomfortable um so so they don't they don't want to sit for as long as you know and of course it's hard when you're learning you want to go quick so they can just get out of there but sometimes you have to hold them a little bit longer than they want to be held and yeah so i just struggled with it a lot so i kind of gave up truthfully i had a tiny emotional breakdown, (laughs) but I didn't want anybody to see me cry. So I walked out of the room and, uh, when I came back in and, you know, I said, you know, I think I'm done. I think I just want to watch. Then what was amazing about these instructors and we had like six of them, they all started teaching me about wool quality and throwing fleeces. And they started focusing on the aspects of it that me and what I do. Exactly. And that was really interesting and amazing because I don't think many people from the yarn business really do shearing. It seems like it's mostly like small producers who just don't want to try to find a shear in the next 300 miles that can come and do this for them. Um, That they were just fascinated with me. They wanted to know about my process, like what kind of wool I use for what and, you know, 
how I work in my business with it and with producers. And then, you know, I was also able to learn a little bit about the stuff that somebody in my field or in not my field, I guess, but in my business would be interested in knowing. So, so yeah, so it was, it was great. It was a really great experience. Um, I did only cry once, so that was good. Um, (laughs) And I got so much lanolin on my hands. I was just in heaven. (laughs) There's such a like serious mind body connection when you're like physically exhausted. It's like it, you just can't like yes. anything triggers crying. I totally understand that. <laughs> so oh, true. Man. What kind of sheep were you shearing? So a particular breed? Yeah, they had two. So they had um, both uh, Corydales and then the majority that they had were Hampshires. So the oh, okay. Hampshires, it was, it's like the oldest registered flock I think in the world, wow. it's been registered for over 150 years, I think. Um, That's awesome. So it's a big point of pride um, yeah. there up at South Dakota State University. Okay, you guys, go check out the show notes or the Instagram feed for this episode because Hampshire sheep are a freaking adorable. I just can't. They have these sweet little black face markings and sticking out ears. Ah! The sheep were very well taken care of. The The gal who ran the sheep department, she lives on the property. She was there every day with us the whole time. She mm-hmm. was, I mean, it was, so people who think that there's any form of pain involved, there's really not. And she, you not know, she's doing it right. No, exactly. And these guys, especially the professionals made sure that yep. you were safe. They were safe. Everybody was, you know, there were no casualties, you know, obviously it's just sharing, but, yeah. um, you know, and well, she like was there could be there could be, you know, injuries like if a sheep bolts, if you know, if you don't have a good hold on a sheep, yeah. you could slip and cut yourself with the clippers. Yes. Like there's you know, there's a bunch of stuff that could happen if things go badly. Yes. But but yeah, like essentially shearing a sheep is like it's kind of like giving a baby a shot. Like you got to distract him a little bit and just get it over with quick. And then you're like, oh, look, everything's yeah. fine. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a lot of people are just describe it to like hitting a moving target. You know, you're trying to go with something that's a little bit squirmy. Yeah. And, you know, you're just trying to make it quick for them, quick for you. Nobody gets hurt. And, yeah, yeah. the clip. we did have somebody who cut themselves pretty bad with the clippers. Um, um, like the hour before, like the class was over, <laughs> the whole yeah. program was over. But you know, it just, it just happens. And yeah, you know, well, and like a good shearer should be better with having, with hurting themselves with the clippers than hurting yeah. the sheep, you yeah. know, cause like a sheep who's not healthy doesn't produce good wool. And the reason why you hire, you know, an excellent, excellent shearer is so that you can keep the best wool intact the best. Like that's why you yeah. do it. Exactly. So. It was it was actually so funny because they knew they knew that I was in the yarn business and when I was shearing one of my sheep I was um, accidentally when I was well not really ex- I was I was getting what they call second cuts which yep. is when you go has to go back over a spot over the that same you didn't, area. Exactly where you didn't really get all the wool. So yeah. <laughs> the guy who was kind of uh, supervising my particular sheep. He looks at me and he goes, hey, he goes, you got to get those second cuts. He goes, those hand spinners don't like those second cuts. They do not. <laughs> well, it because hilarious. it's fleece waste. So it wastes, so you can't you can't spin that into the, uh, into the finished yarn. The second cut will give you um, shorter fibers that will then be more prone to pilling and or will fall out in the processing yeah, of the yarn. Exactly. So... There's, I'm explaining, I, I know you know this, but I'm explaining for your listeners. <laughs> so, um, so second cuts will get 
tossed rather than getting put with the final fleece. And it also shortens your staple length. So the staple length of the fleece, you know, the full length of it will be one thing. A second cut means that part of the part of the fleece will have a shorter staple length. And the second cut gets tossed, usually, and or like put into, you know, a different something. Like it could be, you know, it could be wool batting for something rather than being, um, you know, spinning wool. But uh, so the second cut is not great. <laughs> and it's tried to, it's, mm. it, it is voided whenever possible. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there's a question that I ask everybody in the first season. If you could be reincarnated as any animal, what animal would you be? You know, I've had to think long and hard about this because <laughs> I go with my favorite animals off the bat, right? And I go, yeah. a rabbit. And then I go, no, I wouldn't want to be a rabbit. They're prey animals and they're on edge all the time. And that's Always how I... terrified. <laughs> I yes. That's how I am in my life anyway. I don't want to do that as an animal. Uh, <laughs> and then... Want, I want to be reincarnated next level up. Yes. Don't want to, you know, stay the same, the same drama you've got going on exactly. in your life now. <laughs> exactly. And then I thought about, what about a sheep? And I was like, no, they're just not very smart. So what can That's I true. be instead? And I thought, you know, I honestly, I think I just want to be a horse. I just oh. want to be a horse because you can be beautiful and useful. And mm-hmm. hopefully you don't get in the hands of somebody who doesn't know how to take care of you. But yeah. other than that, maybe a wild horse. I want to be a wild horse. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can be majestic as fuck. You're like, oh, I'm just trotting through this field. Everyone look at me. Hair exactly. toss. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to be really vain as a wild horse. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> but everybody loves you. And they're like, oh, look at that. That's so pretty, you know. I know. It's just coming think... for my close-up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, had you ever seen, like, the Pioneer Woman, her, like, glamour shots of the wild uh, the wild horses that they raise on their ranch? Like, they, they winter wild horses on their ranch? No, I have not seen this. Oh, my God. I'll send you these pictures because they're hilarious. <laughs> So you've got a discount code that you'd like to give to Yarn Stories listeners. Yeah. So um, I'm going to go ahead and offer 20% off of any purchase in my shop, my online shop. So using the code just Yarn Stories. So Y-A-R-N-S-T-O-R-I-E-S. And That's awesome. So where can yeah. people find your store? So that is at www.wooland.com. And is spelled out? It is. Okay, so W-O-O-L-A-N-D-D-Y-E dot com. You got it. Okay. So where can people find you all over the internet? So I'm on Instagram with mm-hmm. at Garden Woolen Dye. Again, all spelled out. And mm-hmm. same with Facebook. So Facebook at, or I guess it's just a... It's, just a search for Garden yes, Woolen Dye. Yeah, and Garden Woolen Dye. <laughs> and uh, yeah, those are my two primary places that I hang yeah. out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you would like to hear this segment with Deb Robson when we talk about shearing, you can join the Patreon at any level to get access to that content. Just go to patreon.com slash Miriam Felton. And don't forget to take advantage of that 20% off code from Anastasia. Her yarn is glorious. You can follow me in all of my making at Miriam Felton Knit Designs on Facebook and on Twitter or Instagram as MimKnits. Thank you so much to the patrons who keep this podcast paid for. If you can't support the podcast with cold hard cash, 
you can rate and review in iTunes or share the podcast with your fiber-loving friends. Spreading the word of yarn stories makes a huge difference. You can follow the podcast on social media via Facebook. Search for Yarn Stories Podcast with no space between yarn and stories. Twitter at Yarn Stories Pod or Instagram at Yarn Stories Podcast. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah, with production help from Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in two weeks when we talk about medical textiles with Alicia Ruthroff. Hey, babe. Hi. What you doing in the closet? <laughs>